If you would, uh, open with me uh, in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 7. And we will once again uh, be in chapter 7, and this time in verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. And when you find that uh, in your Bible, I would ask for you to please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she had learned that he was reclining in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet, and anointed them with oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money letter had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he graciously forgave the debt of them both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And when he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven because she loved much. For he who has been forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to speak amongst themselves saying, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Once again, as is our pattern regularly here at Rua Church, uh, you have had the blessing of reading and hearing God's inerrant word, which has been delivered to us and passed down to us for hundreds and uh, thousands of years. And we, as Christians, believe that this is not just something that the early church found valuable. This is not something that is a record of history. This is indeed God's word for his people for today so that we might grow and be edified and be encouraged and be strengthened in the spirit. So as we take a look at these texts, once again, I want to remind you that this is not just Luke's accounting of history. This is not one man's opinion about who Jesus was. This is God's self-revelation about who he is, about who his son is, and about what his son came to do on earth uh, when he was in uh, walking around in the first century, uh, 
realm of Judea. And so as we look at these verses, we have to come at it not from a position of this is Luke's opinion. We have to come at it asking the question, what is God saying to us as his church through these verses? And there's only one way to understand what God is saying to us through these verses. We have to understand what Luke was communicating to his first audience through these verses. And when we understand what Luke is communicating to Theophilus and to his readers, we can understand what Luke's arguing for. And when we understand what Luke is arguing for, we can understand how we as readers are supposed to apply that to our lives and to our hearts. So as we look at these verses, we're not reading them as someone who's removed from them. We are reading them as someone who's being examined by them when we look at these texts. So look with me at these verses, and I want to put in at the forefront of your mind this one central idea that these verses reveal to us the magnitude of forgiveness. These verses show us how significant and how magnificent forgiveness is. You'll see that the action of these verses unfolds very quickly, starting in verse 36, when it gets right into the events. One of the Pharisees invites Jesus over, and Jesus accepts this offer. And that is all the setup that we have for these verses. Essentially, in one verse, we've covered a whole series of events, both an invitation and a response, and Jesus showing up to the house. For Luke, none of that is important. He's moving along into the actual significance of the text. He's simply setting up for us the significance of what's coming later. So the scene is set. There's a house that Jesus is in. It's a Pharisee who's invited him in. But we have to pause when we think about this because what we've seen thus far with Jesus and the Pharisees is they don't get along very well. In Luke's gospel, they are kind of always at odds with one another. So it should be strange to us that this Pharisee has invited Jesus over for a meal. We have to ask questions about intention. What is the reason that this Pharisee, who we're told is Simon, is the, what is the purpose for him having invited Jesus over? Was it because he's like Nicodemus? and that he believes the kinds of statements that Christ has spoken, and he's struggling with putting together his theology that he's learned with Jesus' life and ministry? Is he someone who's like the Pharisees that we've encountered so far in the text, where he's skeptical, and he's looking for a reason to call Jesus out and perhaps expose him to be a fraud? We're not told in the text why Simon invites Jesus over. But what we know for sure is that this interaction, as strange as it is, is taking place. And with that much of an introduction, we move into the heart of the text, the, the heat of the action, if you will. And that happens in verse 37. So the dinner is happening, and in verse 37, we read these words. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she had learned that he, being Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And not only does she enter the house, not only does she bring with her this precious perfume, we read also that she stands behind him at his feet, weeping, she wets his feet, washes it with her hair, and then she kisses his feet, and then she anoints his feet with this precious ointment. Now this is a striking series of events. If we were not to read any further, we would have a lot of difficulty understanding exactly what is going on with this woman as she first cleans, and then kisses and then anoints Jesus' feet. These events are uh, difficult to understand because of how scandalous the, this display of affection is. In first century Israel, the only one who would ever see a woman with her hair uncovered was her husband. 
A woman going to bed at night would let down her hair in the presence of her husband, and when she would get up in the morning again, she would once again cover it and then go back outside to uh, do her daily work. This is not the kind of thing that is an expected demonstration of affection. So without any other context, this is very difficult for us to understand in the text. If it wasn't for Jesus' response to the woman, we would have a really hard time putting together how we should understand these events as they unfold. But it is because of these events that both Simon and us as the reader now has to decide what are we to do with this woman anointing Jesus' feet? What are we to do with the fact that Jesus is allowing this to happen? And how are we to put this all together and understand these events? The striking demonstration from the woman makes us the reader and Theophilus the reader and Simon the Pharisee all ask the exact same question, which is, what's going on? And when Simon is asked that question, you'll notice his response in verse 39. Simon the Pharisee, who had invited Jesus over, sees this thing happening, and his conclusion that he draws from these events is that Jesus is certainly, whatever he is, not a prophet. He's certainly not a man of God. Notice his, concluding, uh, his conclusion in verse 39. He says it in these terms. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. His conclusion is the conclusion that we, without further context, might even come to ourselves as a reader, which is that this woman, described to us earlier as a sinner, comes to Jesus, displays affection for him, anoints his feet, and then, without any further ado, Simon gives us his assessment of the situation. He tells us that whatever is going on, it's not a good thing. Whatever's going on, this interaction between a sinful woman and Jesus is not sanctified. It's not a helpful thing that is happening. And the, the assessment from Simon is this. If Jesus knew who she was, if he knew that she was a sinner, he wouldn't be letting her touch him. He wouldn't be letting her wash his feet. He wouldn't be letting her kiss his feet. And he wouldn't be letting her anoint his feet. His assessment of the situation, his observation is accurate. All of those things happened. But his conclusion is flawed, as you'll come to see. His conclusion is flawed for one reason, which is because he believes, as all the Pharisees do, in salvation by separation or salvation by segregation which is that they believe the way to be saved by God, the way to reach holiness, the way to attain favor with Yahweh, is not by entering into the world and bringing Yahweh's law into the hearts of people. They believe the way to salvation is to separate themselves from the world, to be undefiled by the world. And they do so in order to see, be seen as separate from the world, so that when Yahweh comes, he will save his people and condemn the rest of the world. So this man, when considering, is Jesus a prophet, concludes he's certainly not because he doesn't practice this segregation salvation that we practice. So he certainly doesn't understand the law like we do. And if he did understand what kind of woman this was, his conclusion would have been the same as ours. And so Jesus, proving that he is a prophet, observes the thoughts in Simon's head. You'll notice in verse 39, Simon doesn't say this out loud. Simon says to himself, meaning internal dialogue, that this is his conclusion, that Jesus is not a prophet or else he wouldn't have let this happen. And Jesus responds to Simon's internal heart ponderings with a statement. 
He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon, probably not knowing what's coming next, is now curious and says, well, then say it. He's, he's interested and he's intrigued as to whatever is going to happen next in this event. And when Jesus both addresses Simon and tells this parable, we're left to conclude a couple of things about him, which is that not only is he a prophet because he can understand Simon's thoughts, so he knows what's going on in his heart, but he's more than that. And he's, he's more than what even Simon expected him to be because he not only knows the woman's sins as much as Simon does, he not only knows her past around reputation that people are aware of, he also knows things that Simon will never know about her. Simon only knows the sins about this woman that she's been caught in. Simon only knows the things that other people have accused her of and perhaps other people have said that she is like this. Jesus knows that and all the sins she's never been caught doing. He knows the sins that Simon is aware of and everything else on the table, including the secret sins in her own heart. And Simon is not aware of any of that. And so Jesus knows her sin more greatly than Simon does and nevertheless still allows her to touch his feet and to wash his feet and to kiss them and to anoint them. And he proves this to us by first telling us a parable, an illustration, if you like, to paint for Simon a picture of what's going on here on the ground. He tells the parable starting in verse 41. There is a certain moneylender who had two debtors. One owes 500 denarii and the other only 50. So as he sets the parable forth, he's giving a, a picture of a lender who has two people who owe him money. One person owes him essentially 10 times the amount of money that the other person owes him. And so then he, he says, well, if this is the case, let's, let's think together about what would happen next if the money lender would cancel the debts of these men. You'll notice in the text it says, when they could not pay, he graciously forgave the debts of both. And then his question to Simon is this, which of those two men do you think would love him more as a result? Which of those two debtors do you think has greater affection towards the lender who forgave their debt. And before we go on into Simon's answer, I want to pause and ask you that same question. It seems rather obvious, right? Who is more thankful for the debt that has been canceled, the debt that has been forgiven here in the text? You'll notice something about the text that's almost a, almost a footnote, which is right at the beginning of verse 42, before he forgives the debts, you'll see that neither of them are able to pay the debt. Neither the one with the small debt nor the one with the significant debt is able to pay the debt. So in terms of which one is still owing him money, which one is able to pay, neither of them are able to pay. It's not a question of one being able to pay and one being unable to pay and he forgives them both. It's a question of both being unable to pay and he forgives them both of the debt that they owe. Both of them are unable to overcome the debt in Jesus's illustration. But when he asks Simon, which of them do you think will love him more? Simon answers, I suppose, in this example, the one whom he canceled the larger debt for. Now we could read all kinds of things into Simon's answer. We could assume that what Simon is doing here is being frustrated by the fact that this illustration has now been taught, that he's almost begrudgingly answering the question. We could also assume that Simon is aware of the fact that Jesus is a masterful teacher and so he's exercising a little bit of caution when answering his question. I think it's probably safe to say Simon is exercising caution here 
because he knows the kinds of questions and kinds of refutations that Jesus can present when questioned. We'll see that this is not something that Luke introduces just for us here, that Jesus is very clever on his feet with the Pharisees, but also in all the Gospels, you kind of see this theme where the Pharisees try to get him in a corner, and he's very easily able to put them in a corner and navigate himself out. And so here we see kind of that same thing on display, where Simon is aware of what's coming next. He's aware of the fact that he's about to be proven wrong. And so out of caution and out of not wanting to give too much of his hand away, he says, I suppose, Jesus, in this situation, the one who the larger debt was canceled, that's the one who is more thankful. That's the one who has a greater affection for the one who canceled the debt. And Jesus tells him very straightforwardly, affirming his answer, you have judged correctly or you have judged rightly. And before Jesus moves on and then begins to do the more painful part of this process, which is apply this illustration to the situation that has just happened, I want to pause and, and, and look at this illustration and kind of all of the things that might be at work in the illustration. The first thing you notice about the illustration is there's two debtors, both of them in debt, neither of them able to pay. Both of them owe the debt to the same person, to this money lender. And as Jesus begins to apply this illustration to the situation on the ground, we have to understand kind of all of the ramifications here. One is that when a money lender is owed money, the natural thing for the money lender to do is not for the money lender to do away with the debt. The natural thing for the money lender to do is maybe work out a way for the debt to be paid over maybe a longer period of time, maybe reduce the debt to the point where someone could pay it. But if you know money lenders at all, if you know people who give out student loans, for example, they don't just cancel debts because it's fun, because someone has to absorb the burden of that debt. And when the debt is canceled by the money lender, who absorbs the debt? It's the money lender. So in this case, the affection given to the money lender is not simply gratitude. It's also the fact that the money lender has now canceled and themselves absorbed the damage of the debt that was owed. So for one person, the money lender has absorbed a debt of 50 denarii. And for the other person, 10 times that amount has been absorbed by the lender. You'll also notice in this illustration something that's uh, clean on the, on the, clear on the back end of it is that the one who owes 500 and the one who owes 50 are both in the same position after the debt has been canceled. One of them is not better off after the debt's been canceled than the other one. And this is a critical part of the illustration because later in the parable when Jesus begins to apply this, he, he's going he's gonna to go with that key idea that now both of them, after the debt is canceled, are actually in a place of neutrality. They're no longer under the debt that they owed. And so when he begins to apply it, we need to keep those things in mind. Because now, when he goes to apply it, he's assuming that we've understood all of this. Because in verse 44, he turns toward the woman, and then it says that he says to Simon. Now what he's probably doing is he's turning towards the woman to face her, to draw Simon's attention to this woman, and now he's going to begin to unpack all of what he's just set up for. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now what Jesus is not saying is that, Simon, you could have done this for me and so she did it for me instead. He's saying, Simon, a very basic rule of courtesy when you have someone over to your house is that either you or most likely one of your servants would wash their feet and clean it off with a washcloth before they sit down to eat dinner. 
That's common courtesy in this culture. And Jesus is saying Simon hasn't even met the minimum qualification for even like basic levels of manners. But this woman, in contrast to Simon, has not only met, she's also exceeded those qualifications for respect. She has washed his feet, but not with water, with her tears and with her hair. And so this woman is displaying gratitude and affection towards Jesus on a level that far exceeds the gratitude of this Pharisee. He continues by not just saying it's this one thing. He is actually going to list a total of three things. He says, secondly, you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. The second point that Jesus is drawing out here is that the kiss of greeting, which is very common in this culture, is something Simon also didn't give to Jesus. When he's walking him into the household, he doesn't welcome him. He doesn't make him feel at home. He doesn't uh, invite him in. Jesus doesn't even receive the most basic accommodations during this dinner. And nevertheless, when the woman comes in, she, to all of her best ability, not only kisses his face, which would have been just a bare minimum kind of greeting, but she actually is going more than that. She's going to kiss his feet to show gratitude and thankfulness. And then lastly, he draws out the contrast between the indifference and anointing. Simon, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. The anointing of the head with oil refers to probably a basic cheap oil that most people would have had in their house. And Simon hasn't done that. But in contrast, it's not that the woman has anointed his head with oil instead. She has anointed his feet with a precious perfume with what we're told in the beginning is an alabaster flask of ointment. So this is a fragrant ointment. It's an expensive ointment. It's uh, very highly valued. And un unlike the oil that is applied to the head in almost like a basic uh, cleansing of sorts, this is applied to his feet, and it's more precious than the basic oil that would widely be available. And so in all three counts where you compare Simon's display of welcoming to Jesus and where you display the woman's display of welcoming to Jesus, you see that the woman meets and exceeds the standards, and Simon doesn't even meet minimum qualifications when it comes to welcoming Christ. And so then, as he goes to unpack what all that implies, you'll notice that Simon at this point is not saying anything anymore. We're not hearing from Simon anymore. And this is just kind of sitting there. He said this to Simon, Nothing else is being said. And now in verse 47, he continues his application of this with, Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Now Jesus, you'll notice, doesn't disagree with Simon's assessment of the woman. Remember in the beginning, Luke tells us she's a sinner. And Simon says, if Jesus knew that she was a sinner... And Jesus is telling Simon, and remember, Simon hasn't told him, so Jesus is now revealing to Simon that he knew all along what kind of woman this was. Her sins, which are great and numerous and bountiful, nevertheless, those sins have been forgiven. The debt that she owed has been paid. She's at zero. She owes no more. And he's saying the evidence of this, the evidence that she has been forgiven, is that she loves much. The reason that she loves much is because her debt has been forgiven. 
There's a transition word in there. Some of your translations will say for or because or for this reason she loved much. Her debt has been canceled. Therefore, or for this reason, she loves much. You'll notice her debt is not canceled as a result of her display of love. She displays love as a result of the fact that her debt has been canceled. And then his secondary statement to Simon is this. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And you'll notice, if you're thinking about that, you're, you might be asking the question, is Jesus saying here that Simon has been forgiven? Is he the debtor with 50 denarii and she's the debtor with 100? We might be tempted to say that that is the perfect illustration of what's being painted here. But you'll notice earlier when Jesus was listing the difference between her love for him and Simon's love for him, he, he makes it clear that Simon didn't meet minimum qualifications for showing love. So it's not that Simon loves little, it's that Simon doesn't love at all. And so if the one who's been forgiven little loves little, this, the one who is loving not at all has been forgiven not at all. You can follow the train of logic as it goes. He's not the one who owed 50 and was forgiven. He's the one who owed some undisclosed amount, but has not been forgiven, as evidenced by the fact that he is not demonstrating love towards Jesus in welcoming him in. This is evidenced by the fact that he doesn't basically kiss him to welcome him, he doesn't wash his feet or have any of his servants wash his feet, and he doesn't anoint his head with even a common grade of oil in the household. All of those things show us that Simon has not done anything in ways of displaying affection for Jesus. And Jesus continues his statement by now once again looking at the woman and saying, your sins have been forgiven. And then all those at the table hear this. All those who are at the table begin to sing amongst themselves, like we saw in chapter 5 of Luke's gospel, who is this man who even forgives sins? We've heard that before, right? When he heals the leper's hand and then he says, which is harder? To say, or sorry, he tells the man to, to get up from the, uh, the paralytic to get up from the bed. And he says, which is harder? For me to tell this man to get up and rise or for me to tell him his sins are forgiven? But so that you may know that his sins have been forgiven, rise and walk. And here to this woman, while they're discussing, he doesn't even wait or respond to them. He says to the woman once again, your faith has made you well, Go in peace. And when we're putting all this together as readers, remember reading Luke's gospel, we have to put ourselves in the mind of a reader and we have to say, what is the significance of these events? How are we supposed to understand these events as they unfold? The first thing I would like to say when we, when we look at these events, we can, we can examine it from lots of different angles. But I think one of the most natural ways to examine it is by looking at the significance of Jesus' proclamation to the woman. He says to her three different times, or sorry, twi two different times about her sins. Um, he says, first to Simon, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. He says a second time now to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then he says a third time to her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. All of those are declarations about the position of the woman. And you remember in the parable, once the debt has been paid, they're no longer considered a debtor. They no longer owe anything. And what Jesus is doing there is refuting the earlier assertion of both the Pharisee and even Luke when he's introducing it. Luke is saying, there's a woman in the town who's considered by and large to be a sinner. She's a person who walks around in her sinfulness. 
But by the time we get to the end of this parable, we're left to question, is that earlier thing that we were told actually true? Is she someone who's still actively engaging in sin and she just found Jesus and Jesus forgave her? What's interesting at this point is we're told very early in the text that she is someone who heard that Jesus was there and then she goes to seek him out. And what that likely means is that this is not either the first time that she's heard of Jesus or the first time that she's heard of his teaching. It's most likely the case that this is a woman who has at some point previously engaged in sins that are widely known. And at least at this point in time, has repented of those sins and is now seeking forgiveness and trying to be a disciple of Jesus, trying to follow in his teaching. We know this because when she hears about Jesus, she doesn't come and seek him uh, timidly like the woman who has a blood disease. She comes and seeks him almost boldly, ready to worship him and praise him. And those aren't behaviors of someone who's seeking forgiveness and feels unworthy of forgiveness. Those are signs of someone who has already, at some point in the past, received forgiveness. So when Jesus declares here at the end, you have been saved by your faith, go and be in peace, we're not to conclude that at this point in time is the first time that she was forgiven and that up until this point, her sins were still outstanding. Because every behavior that she displays towards Jesus is behavior of worship, not of confession. She doesn't confess her sins. She doesn't do what Peter does and falls on his face and says, I'm a sinner, Lord, get away from me. She doesn't do any of that. What she does instead is worship Jesus. And I think that's significant. Some of the translations pick up on this. If you have uh, an NASB or an NIV, it might say something along the lines of, instead of your sins are forgiven, which is what it says in the ESV, it'll say your sins have been forgiven. It picks it up in the past tense, which is when that forgiveness occurred. But that forgiveness, which occurred in the past, has an ongoing or an abiding effect to her present condition. Her sins have been forgiven. And at this current moment, she's living in a state of forgiveness or restitution. And as a result of this current state of forgiveness, Jesus is saying to Simon, her sins have been forgiven. She no longer owes those sins. It's not fair of you to call her a sinner. Even when Jesus addresses her, he doesn't call her a sinner. He says her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. He separates out her identity from her sin. And that's not possible because scripture refers to people as sinners often in their old nature. So the fact that Jesus separates out her practice of sin from her nature, from her character, is evidence of the fact that he doesn't consider her any longer to be a sinner. He considers her to have a new kind of identity. He doesn't explain what that is. Paul will unpack that later in the New Testament. But what's clear here is Jesus is saying, even though she has sins, many sins, he's not disputing that. That's not her identity anymore. It's not the current state of her being. He declares to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then he says these words to her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Nowhere in this text does Jesus say any of those words to Simon. So it would be strange for us to conclude that Simon owed a debt, was forgiven a debt, and it was just a small debt. The purpose of the illustration then is not to contrast the woman with Simon, it's to paint a picture for Simon about thankfulness, about why does someone demonstrate worship towards God. And the demonstration of worship comes for Jesus in this parable from the magnitude of their forgiveness. The greater they've been forgiven, the greater worship they'll put on display. The more thankful they are for the forgiveness that they've received, the more powerfully that will manifest itself in their worship, in their devotion, in their fidelity towards their Lord. For this woman, we can conclude that whatever previous sin she had, 
She has now been forgiven to such an extent that she feels completely free to worship, to kiss his feet, to anoint them with an expensive ointment. None of that is strange, not because she's doing that to somehow earn forgiveness from Jesus. She's doing that as a demonstration of the fact that she has been forgiven by Jesus. She's doing this as an act of worship post-forgiveness. She understood the depth of her sin, and then she comes to the conclusion that, well, if her sin was great and it's been canceled, the depth of my worship should be just as great as the sin I'm aware of was. I think pressing this further, the illustration doesn't just tell us that there are some people who have many sins and some people who have light sins, because nowhere else in the New Testament is, the, is, is someone's sin considered to be some minor detail, some, some small debt. It's a, it's, a hyper, it's a hyperbolic illustration. Because what the Pharisees think often about themselves is that they owe some small debt that will kind of be swept under the rug by God because they live otherwise largely holy lives. He's saying, if you think about it like that, you consider yourself to have a small debt, you still need it canceled, and you're still unable to cancel it yourself. But what he's not saying to Simon is that your, de- your debt is indeed a small debt. He's just doing it for the purpose of illustration. Because when Paul, a Pharisee, concludes about his own debt rightfully, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. He doesn't say, I had a small debt that was forgiven and now I'm thankful. Paul concludes about his own situation that he was a sinner worse than almost any other sinner. And so when we look at this, we're not to conclude that Simon owes a small debt and he just, he's really close to being forgiven by Jesus. Simon's really, really, really far away from understanding the significance of his sin, as evidenced by the fact that he shows no love to Jesus. This woman, however, who had significant sin pre-forgiveness, doesn't matter anymore. She's been forgiven. She's in a state of forgiveness. And as a result of her being in this state, she no longer owes a debt. It's not her identity anymore. She's been forgiven. And Scripture tells us clearly from Old Testament and even into the New Testament that there's no amount of sin that exceeds God's ability to cancel that sin. We're told, for example, of the Israelites and their constant rebellion and unfaithfulness towards God. So we can conclude from their example, at least, that there's no amount of frequency of sin that is unable to be canceled by God. There's no amount of continuing or ongoing sin that God isn't able to rescue you out of and make you into a new creation, into a new identity. I think that's comforting as Christians because often we don't struggle with a great number of sins. We often struggle with, really with one particular sin in an ongoing fashion. Now, that doesn't give us license to fully engage in those sins because we're told other places in the New Testament that we're not to keep on sinning so that grace may abound. So we're supposed to fight the sin. We're supposed to be conformed in the image of Christ. But nevertheless, we can't commit a sin so often that somehow Jesus is like, I can't cancel that debt. The conclusion is that he can cancel any debt. He's, after all, the moneylender. He can do whatever he wants with the debt. We're told uh, from Isaiah that when God is considering the sins of the people of Israel, God gets together and he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. It's unmerited forgiveness from God for his people. And if you think that that's surprising in Isaiah, you need to know the context through which Isaiah is talking. He's talking about the people post completely apostatizing and following after Baal and all manner of sexual immorality. And they didn't do that one time, one big, gigantic sin. They did that from the period of Moses all the way into the time of Isaiah, almost continuously. And nevertheless, God concludes that about them. We're actually told in Psalm 78, you can read it, and it summarizes these events wonderfully. It talks about God saving the people from slavery, then them questioning God in the wilderness. 
and then God saving the people in the wilderness and feeding them, and then God questioning the food that he provides. And then God saying, be faithful to me, and then they're not faithful to him. And then they complain or falsely profess faith towards God, and he sees right through it, and he knows that they're falsely professing. And then the transition really is in verse 38 of Psalm 78, where he says, yet, nevertheless, in his compassion, the Lord made atonement for their sins. And at that point in the psalm, your conclusion isn't, wow, that is the most natural thing for God to do. Your conclusion at that point in the psalm is that this is the most unnatural turn of events that has occurred thus far. God is just to punish Israel. And nevertheless, he chooses to have compassion and to show forgiveness. And when we get here in the story with the moneylender, it's the same thing. Both of them owe a debt that could justly be collected by the lender. And yet, the lender cancels the debt. He graciously forgives the debt, as some of your translations will say. And then he leaves them both in a state of forgiveness. And he, being the lender, absorbs the debt himself. Now, how does God absorb the debt of sinners? How does God establish that peace with himself? He does so by himself making the payment. We're told that by the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus goes to a cross to die an unjust death after having lived a perfect life. And then he resurrects out of the grave and he teaches all of his disciples that this all happened as it was predicted in the Old Testament as the very means by which someone would attain salvation. Jesus comes down, dies in your and my's place, and then resurrects to the right hand of the Father. And in doing that, he absorbs the debt, not in some theological way, not sweeping it under the rug. He deals with it by paying for it. And when he pays for the debt, we, like this woman, can be assured that our debt has been canceled, that it's been forgiven, because he pays for every nickel, dime, and penny that we owed. He doesn't pay the debt by ignoring it. He doesn't pay the debt by forgetting about it. He pays the debt by himself dealing with it. And that's what gives this woman the assurance of peace or the proclamation of peace. In the Old Covenant in Leviticus, you can read about the peace offering and its function. And in order for peace to be established in Leviticus, something has to die. Nothing can attain peace apart from the shedding of blood. The author of Hebrews tells us there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And the whole point of this Old Covenant sacrifice for the peace offering is so that you might be assured of the abiding peace that Yahweh has on his people Israel. But the problem with the peace offering is every time you sin, you need a new peace offering to go back and to re-offer that offering so that you can now once again have peace until you sin again when you need to go with another offering to once again attain peace. And we're told through the author of Hebrews that the reason Christ died was that he was a perfect offering to establish an abiding peace for his people. He was the perfect sacrifice that was offered not from us to God as the old system was, but now actually from God to God to attain for the sins of the people. He's a better sacrifice. He's a better offering than all the old offerings. And he's a sacrifice that we couldn't bring to the table ourselves. And he's a sacrifice that's offered once and for all, not on an ongoing basis, but once by God. And then we have this assurance of peace through God, through his offering of peace to us. And this is not something that should surprise us in Luke's gospel. Because remember, when we're introduced to the baby Jesus, when the angels show up, they say, when, when he comes down, this is God's favor and his peace on those on whom his goodwill rests. 
That's the announcement of the angels to the shepherds. And so now Jesus is telling this woman, you have peace. And he's beginning to fulfill the thing that Luke has set up for us earlier. So there's no sin that this woman could have committed that could have possibly put her outside of the grace of God. We don't know if she was a prostitute or if she was an adulterer. It's likely that it's one of those more public, non-societally acceptable sins. Otherwise, she wouldn't have received this designation. We're just not sure what it was. But what is clear to us is regardless of the sin, there's no category of sin that could have possibly outdone Jesus' ability to forgive. And when the Pharisees reflect on Jesus' proclamation of forgiveness, they're right in saying, who is this who even forgives sins? They're offended by that, and they should be, because what Jesus is saying is what they're understanding him to say is not God forgives your sins. He's saying, I forgive your sins. As it tells us in John, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus makes himself equal with God, says he has the rule and authority to forgive sins. Because remember, earlier in the, in the illustration, the debt is owed to the lender. Only the lender can cancel the debt. And so Jesus now, on the application, puts himself in the position of the lender, saying he is the one who can cancel the debt. And that's striking. Because his assumption then is that not only does this woman owe him a debt, but Simon owes him the debt. All the other people around the table owe him the debt. Everyone in earshot owes him the debt. All of the people in all creation owe him the debt. And so it's good when you hear the judge to whom you owe the debt tell you you have peace. You can be assured that that peace is established. And then how can we have that, though, assurance of peace? Jesus doesn't just give us a one-time assurance of peace. He gives us an ongoing reminder of the peace that we have with him through multiple ways. One is that he gives us his spirit, who is our comforter, who is our helper, to encourage us and to strengthen us, to remind us of the fact that we do have a relationship with God, that we have an ongoing peace with God. And then also he gives us the grace of breaking bread together and taking part in the Lord's Supper as an ongoing reminder of the fact that this is not a sacrifice that we offer to God, but this is a sacrifice that he has now presented to us as an abiding peace offering, a binding reminder to us of the kind of forgiveness that we have in him. So when we put those things all together, we can be left to conclude several things about this uh, section of verses. The first conclusion is that we all owe a debt. James 2 tells us that if everyone keeps the law perfectly and yet stumbles at one point, he's guilty of the whole law. So it doesn't matter whether you think your debt is great or small, everyone owes a debt that nobody can pay. We all owe that debt not to some arbitrary force in the universe or to Satan or to anyone else, we owe the debt to God. And he's just to be able to come back at any point in time that he wants to and collect that debt. We can't pay that debt, and yet at any point in time he can call that debt to the forefront. And so what are we to do with the debt that we owe? Well, we need God to forgive the debt. We need him to cancel it. And you'll notice that the moneylender in this illustration is the one who initiates the cancellation of debt. He's the one who comes out of his way and says, your debt has been canceled. And then the question is, okay, if the moneylender initiates it, what is the evidence that the debt has been canceled? What is the evidence that someone has been forgiven of their sins? They will express it through faith, and they will express it through worship. If they express their cancellation of debt through love, through faith, through worship, then we can be sure that this is evidence of the fact they have been previously forgiven. As it says here in the text that the reason she loves so much, the reason she worships so much, is because she has been forgiven in the past. And then the other thing that we can conclude is like this woman, worship is a necessary outflowing of the cancellation of debt. 
Worship can look like a lot of things. It can be quiet devotion in prayer to the Lord, contemplating his truth, meditating on it, reflecting on it, reading and memorizing his scripture, saturating it into our hearts. It's an act of worship to the Lord because it tells us uh, or tells him that we value his word. We value his teaching. It's worshipful to him. We can also worship through personal devotion and, and living our lives in such a way that reflects conformity to the image of Christ, being brought into a like image with him. That's the ultimate hope that we all have is that we will be made like him when we see him. But I think the most uh, potent way that we can worship is the way that we have guaranteed to do both in this life and in the life to come, which is through singing. You know, in heaven, when we all get there, what's going to happen is preaching was not going to be a thing anymore. You're not going to need to study your Bible. You're not going to need to pray. You're going to be there in the presence of God, having good knowledge. Prophecy will cease when we see him again. We won't need to have the regular revelation and proclamation of God's word. But what we do know for sure happens in heaven is lots of singing. So singing is a kind of worship that we can engage in now, that we can engage in even into all of the ages of eternity. So we might as well get a head start. (laughs) We're going to be doing it for a long time. So... And then the other thing I think that's a very natural outflowing of this, uh, of this illustration that we're drawn here, this, this text that we have in front of us, is that the, the desire of everyone's heart, the desire of this woman's heart, uh, is, is this confirmation of peace. Not, not the achievement of peace. She has achieved peace in the past. But for her, the achievement of forgiveness does not give her necessarily an assurance of peace. It's actually through approaching Jesus and worshiping Jesus that she gets the assurance of peace. That doesn't mean that peace wasn't present for her previously, but what it means is for her heart to be satisfied, to be filled and to have assurance of peace, is worship is almost the thing that needs to bring peace to its completion. It's a difficult thing for us to understand, but we're told all the time in scripture that sometimes we can be down as Christians. And when we go to the Lord in prayer, when we sing worship, somehow that can enliven our hearts together to have peace and fullness of joy and satisfaction in the sacrifice that we have through Christ. But we can also say pretty safely uh, with Jesus here that when peace is offered, those who refuse to accept the peace are under a very bitter kind of judgment. Hebrews 2, 3 says, how will we then escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we neglect the salvation that has been offered by the lender, how will we escape? How will we escape if we ignore the means of salvation that God has provided? We won't. So we should not and we cannot ignore this offering. When Isaiah talks about this later in his prophecy, he says that you must seek the Lord while he may be found. You must draw near to him while he is close. This is not a forever kind of offer, that there is a time that is coming when peace will no longer be the offering, when instead the offering will be worship and bow the knee under judgment and wrath. And so under that warning, under that awareness, I encourage you to seek the Lord while he may be found. This is a kind of peace that you need to receive. And if you have received this peace, I'm sure you can testify to the fact that this is a wonderful abiding gift from God. So have you received him? Have you received that assurance of peace from God? And if not, will you receive him? What's good about the fact that you are still alive and conscious and hearing my voice is the fact that time still allows for that to be received. Time and God's grace has persisted and patiently waited even but one more moment for another sinner to come 
under the repentance and the assurance of forgiveness that this woman has achieved. And just like Simon is given the illustration of this woman with the possible hopes that he will respond in a favorable light, so you and I, as readers of Luke's Gospel, are given the same proposition. This woman, how wonderfully she has been forgiven. How wonderful her worship is. Don't be like Simon, who takes this all as a theological question and not like a real abiding offer. So we are considered to consider the offer of Jesus and not to take it lightly because of the severe consequences if we don't. And also, the immense joy that we can partake in with God, the immense peace that we can have with him when we receive his forgiveness. There's nothing like it in all the world. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your peace that you offer us. Lord, we would be so slow to bring worship to you if you do not regularly encourage us to do so. We thank you for your word that prompts in our hearts worship. We thank you for the grace in everyday life that prompts our hearts to sing your praise. We thank you for the common grace of your spirit to bless us and to keep us and to cause health within us. All of those blessings should cause us to worship you who gives them to us. But Lord, the greatest blessing, the most powerful blessing that we have ever received as believers is peace with you. And so Lord, let us not move past that blessing or skip over it or somehow consider it worth nothing. But Lord, let us saturate in that blessing. The one that we could never earn. The one that we could never pay back. And the one that you have guaranteed for us. Lord, would we not neglect such a great salvation that you have offered to us. We thank you and we praise you.